0: Welcome to the Unraveling Science podcast, the podcast where we listen to the stories that shape the science, but also the scientists. I'm your host, Dr. Megan Hanlon, and I'm so happy to be back for season four. This season, I'll be bringing you stories mainly featuring Irish scientists abroad, but will also feature some key Irish researchers working here at home. We have such a diverse season to look forward to, from ecology to physics, paleontology to neuroscience, and so much more. So if you're ready, let's begin Unraveling Science. This season I'm extremely grateful to be continuing to work with our wonderful sponsors Biosciences Limited. Biosciences are now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. You can check out what they supply at thermofisher.com. Dr. Gareth Fitzgerald, Professor of Systems Pharmacology and Translational Therapeutics at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania is my guest on the podcast today. So Garrett is an international leader in cardiovascular disease research and leading world figure in pharmacology. And among the many awards and recognitions I could list out, Garrett has received the Boyle, Coakley and Harvey medals. He was the first recipient of the SFI St. Patrick's Day medal, along with the American Heart Association's Distinguished Scientist Award, Phillips, Lucian and Sheil Award. And I am not joking, I could be here for a long time listing out the many, many others. So Gareth, listen—it's such an honor to have you here on the podcast today. So, thank you so much for coming down to chat with me.
1: It's a real pleasure to join you, Megan.
0: Great. Um, So, I suppose I want to start right in and get to know—you know—what you were like when you were younger and a curious child. Were were you always interested in medicine and science, or kind of what were your interests when you were in primary school? Say,
1: whoa. Uh, (laughs) No, I think is the short answer. I was interested in lots of stuff, but I was. What most people would call unfocused today, (laughs) and uh, you know, I I think I had the benefit of an unfocused uh, Irish education, um, as opposed to having to do the eleven plus or or choose my three A-level subjects. Uh, Like most of us, I wound up doing seven or eight subjects in the leaving, and that meant I knew a little bit about a lot of things, and. you know, I, I think uh, I've I've really benefited from that as life has gone on.
0: So you you grew up in Graystones, is it?
1: I did grow up in Greystones in a pretty uh, unusual situation. Okay. Uh, my parents ran a hotel, so I grew up in a hotel. Although they, um, it sounds rather grand, and from where I sat, it was rather grand. In fact, it started out as the Grand Hotel, <laughs> uh, uh, but. Um, It also was reflective of the economy at the time. So my parents both worked very hard, but only one of them got paid. And uh, we never had a front door. We had a few rooms at the end of a corridor. So although um, in some ways, it was an extraordinarily luxurious upbringing for me, uh, you know, grass tennis courts that I could play on and great views of the sea and all sorts of interesting people coming through the hotel all the time. On the other hand, in terms of my parents, it sort of mirrored uh, the sort of middle-class economy at that time. My mother would get up at six in the morning and work until late at night and never got paid a pound. So uh, on her retirement, after many years, she was given a cut glass bowl. uh, and That was the material donation from the owners of the hotel. So so it was an unusual upbringing in that respect. Yeah. And I guess in in another respect, uh, you know, I was the little princeling. (laughs) It was like the one-child policy. I didn't have any siblings. Okay. So um, I think that that affected my life as well, not perhaps in the ways that you would think. When I eventually got married, my only only request was we have more than one child. (laughs) And uh, uh, I think it also meant I, from a pretty early age, um, was reaching out to compensate for the absence of siblings by by trying to be social and trying to make a web of friends. And, you know, I would say at this stage in my life, I'm extraordinarily fortunate in the uh, rather large number of very close friends that I have uh, scattered now across the globe because of the job that I'm in
0: you know thinking of you growing up in a hotel and being an only child you probably were surrounded by a lot of different people as well and you probably were chatting to all of those you know with the with the guests coming and going so do you think that in a way maybe it stood to you with like um presentations and and presentations of your work <laughs> now
1: that's an interesting thought yeah uh, it could be I mean uh, we're all born with the gift of the gab in Ireland so yeah compared to compared to many uh groups we we have a, a a language advantage, I suppose, in that respect. But um, certainly, what it did was it exposed me to people from uh, all sorts of different backgrounds. Now, obviously, you know, segregated by socioeconomics, they could afford to come to a hotel, yeah. but uh, it gave me um, it gave me a great breadth of exposure to people from, uh, you know, the Sultan of Oman to the Bolshoi Ballet. You know, people from Eamon Andrews to Uuli uh, o'connor uh, from brendan Behan uh, uh, you know through to um prime ministers uh so so in that sense as a kid growing up yeah it was a it, it was a great privilege to you know be exposed to all these people i wasn't you know indulging them in in complicated conversation from <laughs> an early stage but i would say uh, as far as that's concerned the real benefit was my father who um you know who was interested in everything and had a very uh, a disputatious character. So all my friends would love to come and argue with him, uh, because the 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 role the the model at that stage was that fathers were often quite remote. I mean, not like fathers nowadays. Mm-hmm. Uh, they often stood apart, uh, left the mothering to to the mother, <laughs> yeah. uh, um, and didn't engage. In the way my father did from a very early age, and he taught me to be interested in things. He taught me to argue my case, and he taught me to be courteous in in, in doing that. Yeah. So uh, I think he was um, he was the one I can thank for that.
0: Your, I, I read that your your grandfather as well was was a what, maybe professor of Greek was it? Um, and you yourself were very interested in languages, I suppose, in school.
1: Yeah, I wound up, um, you know, I I went to Belvedere. And at that stage, you know, it was all um, academically streamed. And if you were, (laughs) if you were in the in the upper stream, you paid the penalty in a sense of uh, being kept away from science, and really, uh, the only choice that we got, of all the subjects when we went into fifth year, the sort of final two years of school, was whether you could do chemistry or Greek, and if you were in the first division, it wasn't really a choice, you were told to do Greek. So so I wound up doing a lot of languages, I I wasn't particularly proficient in any of them. uh, But I wound up doing a lot of languages and really, in terms of what I wound up doing for a living, the only ones that were really directly connected were maths and physics, uh, both of which I enjoyed, I must say, but um, I yeah I had many years of classics and uh, again I think that's something that I've really been privileged to have experienced and I think it's influenced my life actually.
0: And so at what point then did you decide to pursue medicine and and Uh, science?
1: Well I think um, you know not just in that choice but throughout life you know I'm really struck by the series of accidents Mm -hmm. that have really um Being the big decision points, the accident in terms of what to do, I had no idea what to do. I wasn't one of these kids who was, you know, playing with chemistry sets since the age of five. And uh, I went to the dentist. I thought that looks interesting, and I came on my second visit, and I told him I was going to do dentistry, and he said, No, no, no. He said, "Uh, Do medicine first. You can learn the amount of dentistry you need on the back of a stamp thereafter. So I signed up for pre med, not pre dental. It was as uh, random as that. God, <laughs> so you, and, had a, uh,
0: you had a career advice teacher and a dentist.
1: <laughs> yeah, it was it was completely random. And then and then uh, the other big event that occurred that year was uh, I met the woman I married, and the way I met her was somebody introduced me to her at a bus stop with the objective of getting her to invite me to a party that they were all going to, uh, and she didn't. but her um friend she was holding the party with did but of course she was in the midst of a big breakup with her boyfriend that night so I didn't talk to her that night but at least I'd met her
0: yeah (laughs) again that
1: was a sort of random event
0: (laughs) that's so god that's good because I know you also said that why you then chose medicine there was something with a microscope um oh
1: that was yeah that was sort of um in those days it was relatively easy to get into pre-med the first year and of course the subjects were botany zoology um, chemistry and physics and as i said all i'd had any experience of was physics and there was no continuous assessment Uh, you had no idea what the standard was Uh, you only had one big exam at the end that only about 20 percent of people passed so there was a, a free-floating anxiety and downright paranoia were in the in the class throughout all of the year and it was it was tragic as well i mean there were suicides and and so on Mm -hmm. Uh, and then after christmas the 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 people who had failed it the year before and you were only allowed one more chance would come back and of course their job was to scare the bejesus out of uh, those of us in the first year (laughs) so we were all you know really strung out about this and the um the highest mortality in terms of the exam was in uh, the zoology practical. And um, I remember uh, Mabel Kane, who was the uh, four foot something professor of zoology, uh, telling this packed amphitheater just before we broke up for Christmas. She said, Students, now I want you to look left and right and re- remember that on average, something less than one of you will be here next year. And then she said, and I hope all you girls are doing your typing classes. No. <laughs> well, that was, she was a creature of her time. Yeah. So, so uh, yeah, I, so I hit the zoology practical. And, uh, you know, we'd all been running around Dublin dissecting rabbits, the cranial nerves of a dogfish, all, all the sort of things that came up as practicals in garages and the apothecaries hall. I remember doing that with Frank Powell. Uh, along came the big day, and my my major was dissection of the mouth parts of the cockroach. So I did it, and you know, there was a format you had to follow. And um, uh, you know, I was done, I was finished. And and then I thought, well, I can gild the lily, I can make it a little bit more beautiful. And as I did, I noticed a large mouth part jumping out <laughs> off the slide uh, out of my line of sight. So I thought I was done because uh, I would have been done if uh, that was my major. And as I sat trembling on the high stool, an invigilator came along who, I remember uh, looking like Helen of Troy. And uh, she said, don't worry. Uh, And she got down on her hands and knees and after an interminable period, arose with the mouth part on her thumbnail and uh, that was uh the reason the reason I went on because <laughs> I'm sure I wouldn't have repeated the year I I, I I wasn't up for it to repeat the year but um yeah so again that's another accident of yeah. fate yeah.
0: I actually because you know when I talk to people on this podcast the kind of theme of serendipity comes up so much and the kind of like that the series of accidents so yeah that's it's oh, yeah it's amazing really
1: yeah I mean we all think we can plan for things but the black swans that get us you know
0: exactly um did you do this while you were in ucd or after UCD that you went over to london then to do a master's
1: no i did uh, you know i did medicine in ucd i did uh clinical house jobs in vincent's and the matter uh while i was doing it which not while i was an intern but when i was uh, uh an sho or registrar or something i uh i did a, a um, night course in Trinity and did a diploma in statistics, because I'd always been sort of interested in mathy type things. And the guy uh, there, when he heard I was going to London, and again, that was another accident, linked me up with a guy called Michael Healy in the School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, where they had a master's in statistics. And Michael let me do this one-year full-time course, spread over two years, using it Whatever way I could, because of course I was doing my first postdoc in London, and the the way I wound up going to London was another accident. I um, I saw a poster in Vincent's one day for uh, this subject, clinical pharmacology, which I'd never heard of before. But you know, um, I'd done a little summer work in pharmacology when I was a student. And uh, you know, clinical medicine is very seductive. You know, a chance to cure and all that sort of thing. And here was a chance to put a bit of science that I was interested in together with clinical medicine. So I went to this day course. And of course, you know, to anyone now, this is sort of a trivial event. You know, I mean, you get on. God help you on Ryanair, and you go there for five euros or something. But then, <laughs> but then, uh, the air miles between London and Dublin were the most expensive air miles in the world, and it cost two hundred and twenty pounds to fly from Dublin to London, which in those days, you know, we're talking nineteen seventies, that was a colossal amount of money. Yeah. Anyway, I went over to this thing, and there was one guy there. Who, uh i remember was described by others as the doyen of clinical pharmacology uh, and i thought this guy is you know he, he's really impressive um but i'll i'll write to him and try and get his advice and i wasn't even thinking of writing to him and asking for a job because of course we all had you know a real inferiority complex as irish people there it's difficult to sort of remember what that was like but we really did if somebody, if somebody said anything in a British accent, upper class, upper middle class accent, with confidence, we assume they were right. <laughs> so so in any event, I, I went over to Colin and Colin, of course, was this guy, Colin Dalry. he he uh, assumed I was looking for a job and, and spoke to me in those terms. And, you know, what I'd done is I'd coupled it to a rugby match in Twickenham. And of course, his secretary was Irish, and she knew the only reason I was there was to see the rugby yeah uh, but in any event he offered me a job and uh and that's how i started working there and i coupled working there uh with this uh, statistics masters that i'd sort of drive up and down the a40 like about out of hell to catch uh, lectures and, and so on
0: and so that was you know the the start of your love i suppose of pharmacology
1: yeah that was uh i mean in in retrospect again i was extremely lucky because at the time the Roe Postgraduate Medical School, Hammersmith Hospital, was really a hub of what we call translational science today. Uh, you, it, it was really run by physician scientists. Everybody had a lab that ran a clinical service. Uh, and this was a model that sort of you know, fell apart later, and, and Humpty Dumpty had to be subsequently put back together again decades later. So I, I really got there at the best of times to train as a physician scientist. And it meant that in a sense, my scientific career began with mechanistic studies using humans as the model organism. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's become extremely fashionable again in the last five years or so. Uh, But I was very fortunate to begin that way. And then, you know, as I went on with my training in the US and Germany and elsewhere, uh, you know, I started doing more and more basic stuff, uh, but I never stopped doing the clinical investigation as well. And I think the end of it all, That turned out to be an unusual phenotype, people doing mechanistic studies in in model systems, but also in human beings. And of course, as as the power of the technologies with which we can ask those questions, and the precision with which we can ask those questions in humans now has greatly augmented over the last 10 years, uh, everybody is, is trying to get into that business now. So I was very fortunate to be trained in it at an early stage.
0: Yeah, and you know that idea of translational research is also something I'm, you know, very passionate about, and I'm so lucky to be, you know, involved in a translational lab as well. You know, what what do you see is the benefit of you know bridging that gap between, I suppose, basic science and and clinical outcomes, and, and why are you so passionate about it?
1: Well, I think you know uh, there were major hurdles in in bringing the discoveries of basic science into clinical impact. Um, You know, people use these cliches like the Valley of Death. But there was uh, really some truth to it. Uh, I think the the biggest deficit in crossing that Valley of Death is human capital. You know, the number of people who actually, you know, are, are trained in basic science have the an appreciation of the power and precision of basic science but yet also understand uh, the complexity of asking questions in humans, therefore can bridge the basic discoveries into clinical impact, still remains a pretty small number of people. And that's why when uh, many decades later, I wound up founding this Institute for Translational Medicine and Therapeutics, we put the focus on human capital that that was what we're going to try to do through education and through recruitment, increase the number of people that could play in that translational space. Uh, because if they were, if their numbers increased, then they'll form the collaborations that get things across the line. Uh, in Penn, really, when when you know, I was discussing with the dean then, Arthur Rubenstein, about setting up this institute. I, I said it has to be an institutional commitment over, you know decades not five years which is the way these things are often started to really place most of the institutional resource in that space you can do any type of science in pen but really to focus most of the institutional funding in that space crossing the translational divide and they did and they've stuck with it and the result is you know we have um, breakthrough therapies like car t cells in cancer uh gene therapies that cure blindness uh crispr that Looks like now with RNA delivery will be an affordable way to correct things like sickle cell disease. And all of these people, you know, all, all of those uh, individuals have been deeply involved in the Institute and, you know, have drawn resources from the Institute at important times. Uh, so, you know, although the Institute is only one of the players that's enabled these life changing breakthroughs, it's been a vital one. So, so you know, people talk about impact, but curing cancer and making the blind see that's that's real impact or or, or vaccinating the world.
0: Speaking about you know, impact, it's probably a, a good point in our conversation to bring in, I suppose, the impact that you've had and your research has had. Um, I suppose maybe to start, you know, talk to me about cardiovascular disease and cardiovascular disease research and the seminal discovery of of low dose aspirin that your group has um had discovered. And I suppose what impact maybe that has had uh, for the treatment of cardiovascular disease?
1: Well, you know, again, there's this oft-quoted cliche, we all stand on the shoulders of giants. And really, you know, for any of us, you know, what we do is just a brick in the wall. Uh, And also one of the downsides of so-called celebratory science, you know, all these prizes, is they're usually given to individuals uh, who stand on the efforts of you know, 10s, 20s, 30s of people in their laboratories that support what what they're getting the prize for. Uh, But I think probably there's some value because particularly in terms of the public recognition of science, things like the Nobel prizes, you know, uh, help bring home to people how science impacts their their daily lives. So really in the case case of aspirin, uh, you know, again, uh, many people over a hundred years beforehand, serially had contributed to uh, the discovery. Well, the synthesis of aspirin, the discovery of its clinical benefits in terms of pain relief, the discovery that it, it blocked prostaglandins, uh, which was John Bain uh, who got the Nobel Prize for that. The discovery uh, that it, it uh, inhibited uh, platelets sticking together as a first step in terms of what leads to heart attacks and strokes, was was Gustav Born the discovery that aspirin could inhibit the product of um, platelet prostaglandin formation, which is thromboxane, really Phil Magers, I think, and of course Bank Samuelson, who discovered the compound. So all these people, you know, were were bricks in the wall, very fundamental bricks in the wall, and you know, Banked along with John got the Nobel Prize. So so uh, I wouldn't like to pretend that you know we swanned in and uh, did all the aspirin story. But I think where where our contribution came in was, we helped develop a a method of looking at the formation of thromboxane in people. It's a highly biologically active fat lipid, uh, but it's very evanescent. And uh, therefore to measure it in body fluids is impossible. Uh, So what you've really got to do is discover what its breakdown products are, Uh, that are biologically inactive but that they're chemically stable and to use sophisticated approaches at that time which was mass spectrometry to to be able to measure them with quantitative accuracy Uh, and then to show that they reflected that things were going on so so we did all that sort of stuff uh, um, and then that gave us a way of looking not just at thromboxane but also at a sort of counteractive lipid or fat that's made by the body wall the blood vessel wall uh, called prostacyclin Uh, we were able to look at the differential suppressive effect of different doses of aspirin on these two uh, uh, lipids one of which is bad for you and one of which is good for you and uh, you know what we found was that at very low doses we could uh, sustain the benefit uh, uh, without much of a price in terms of um, cost as far as suppressing prostacyclin was concerned. Uh, And then in a parallel world with a different approach, uh, my good friend Carlo Petrono uh, in Rome was looking at the capacity of cells to make thromboxane. And it turns out capacity and actual biosynthesis are two very different things. They differ by orders of magnitude. But again, in terms of defining the hit of aspirin on the platelet, capacity to form thromboxane uh, his work uh, really complemented ours. And we, as is so often in science, we, we competed <laughs> viciously, uh, but also wound up collaborating and, and also wound up being recognized, um, uh, you know, by some prizes together for, for the work. Uh, so really, that's what provided the foundation, informed uh, people like Rory Collins, who is doing a very big trial uh, to ask for the aspirin-prevented heart attacks in people uh, who might be getting thrombolytic drugs uh, like streptokinase in, in a study called the ISIS-2 study thing for, for the VA study in unstable angina. And They were the first two clinical trials that showed that aspirin actually dramatically reduced death in people um, on the one hand having unstable angina, which is like a prelude to having a heart attack, and on the other presenting with a heart attack. And what was interesting was that for decades before that, with Born's recognition that aspirin blocked platelet sticking together, people did trials to ask the question and all the trials came up negative. So why did they come up negative? Because they didn't have a way of, uh, they didn't have a biomarker of saying, when are you susceptible to aspirin intervention? And it turns out that you have a big explosion of platelet activation when you have a heart attack. Uh, but if you look you know five days later things have cooled off and in these trials they were admitting people on the basis of having had a heart attack but sometimes the heart attack was months ago or even years ago so their power to detect a benefit was completely diluted and uh, uh, in the va study before that was done we showed for the first time uh, that there was phasic platelet activation during the ischemic episodes of unstable angina so here was a population enriched for potential benefit from aspirin. And people forget that there was a placebo-controlled trial done, that was the VA study, and aspirin halved the mortality, halved it. That's a huge drug effect that mm. had been missed for a decade of clinical trials because there wasn't an appropriate biomarker uh, uh, to say these are the people who are likely to benefit. And of course, nowadays, we're very sensitive to that, of of genetic variants enriching populations within which clinical trials might be performed. Genetic variants in cancer, for example, uh, that, that indicate that, you know, uh, blocking a growth factor, for example, might benefit cancer. And we, in those sorts of examples, we've, we've clear segregation of benefits based on the biomarker, in that case genetic biomarkers, uh, from those who don't have it. So in that sense, it was like a prelude, you know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So I suppose you would give this to a patient prophylactically.
1: Well, you know, the interesting thing is, as you've probably seen in the last uh, few days, a so-called expert group in the US has now announced that there's no reason to give aspirin prophylactically because of the bleeding risk. Uh, And what's sort of a bit rich here is uh, that we've been saying this for actually a couple of decades that there's clear benefit from aspirin in preventing a second heart attack or stroke. The evidence in terms of it preventing a first one for decades has been, yes, it prevents first heart attacks, but it causes serious GI bleeds (laughs) one-to-one. So there was no evidence in the current data for a clear segregation. And similarly, although there's a lot of interest in the possible role, of aspirin in cancer uh, again the evidence isn't in in a way that justifies that as uh, a prophylactic treatment so you know i'm a real old guy i don't take aspirin i've never taken aspirin prophylactically yeah uh, so these guys this so-called expert panel uh, told everybody to take aspirin about four or five years ago and now they're catching up with reality and emmanuel ricciotti and i have just written a big review of aspirin and cardiovascular disease and cancer coming to the conclusion I've just given you uh, that we published in the um in the annual review of medicine and I think they probably read it
0: <laughs> <laughs> um I suppose another kind of area that I wanted to talk to you about was that discovery of the um, harmful effects of cox-2 inhibitors and um, how difficult was that to prove it and also I'm very interested you know in, in the backlash that that may have been you may have received from probably pharma companies.
1: So, uh, um, when I went to the states, I went to Vanderbilt originally, that's where that aspirin work was done. Yeah, and I, then I had a mental aberration and came back for, as I say, a short but memorable sojourn yeah. in Ireland. Yeah. Uh, and then I went back to the states to to where I am now, the University of Pennsylvania.
0: Yeah, okay, I don't want to interrupt you, but when you came back, because you were in UCD for three years. Did you Two and a half. Think, was it? Okay. <laughs> and did you, in returning home, did you think you would say for good? Was that the original? Plan, oh, oh or for
1: sure. Oh, that was the absolute game plan. Yeah. Okay. No question about that. We can talk about that if you want to, but to come back to the Vioxx thing. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, this second version of the cyclooxygenase enzyme, which is the one that's targeted by aspirin had been discovered by several groups simultaneously. And what was interesting about it was it was a highly regulated gene and uh, seemed to be the one that contributed mostly to the prostaglandins, these lipids that are formed and contribute to pain and uh, inflammation. So uh, the attraction of um, targeting COX-2 selectively was that if you avoided the first COX, COX-1, that seemed to be where the trouble was. If you um, gut GI problems from taking nonsteroidal drugs. Uh, It seemed to be a mixture of inhibiting platelets. um, They only have COX-1, and COX-1-dependent protective lipids in the lining of the gut. So if you could just target COX-2, as so the story went, uh, you'd avoid the harmful effects of nonsteroidals while retaining the benefits in terms of pain and inflammation. So I spent a bit of time trying to persuade people in in Pfizer and um, Merck to give us their drugs. They were the first two drugs, Celebrex and Biox, uh, uh, just to look at the human pharmacology. And using the approaches uh, of studying these metabolites that I mentioned, Brendan MacAdam, who's back in Ireland, uh, working as a consultant in Beaumont, uh, Francesca Catella, a very talented Italian postdoc, they did studies with both drugs, and both of them had this very surprising observation First of all, there was no effect on thromboxane. Well, we expected that, because there's no COX-2 platelets. But lo and behold, here was this suppressive effect on prostacyclin. So if you're leaving the um, potentially harmful lipid unchanged and you're suppressing this protective one, that could spell trouble. But obviously all we'd done at this stage was measure biomarkers and got this unexpected result. And there was a mechanistic explanation why it should be so, in that if you look at the vasculature under um, static conditions, if you culture cells in a dish, you don't see any COX2. But if you subject COX2 to to laminar shear forces, you get upregulation of COX2. And uh, that's what we hypothesized was happening um, in the body, that the bloodstream was upregulating COX2. So that even under physiological circumstances, Uh, these drugs would be shutting off prostacyclin, but even more so under perturbed circumstances where its beneficial effect would be even more important to preserve. So, you know, I went back to both companies and I said, look, you know, uh, I I sent the same email to both of them, actually. I said, (laughs) you know, we've made this observation. It does nothing other than raise a question. It doesn't answer the question, Uh, but it does say that one should think seriously about performing Certain types of study, both in model systems and in humans, to try and flush this issue out, uh, and also that you should start keeping a very close eye on cardiovascular events as people start to consume these drugs. So, so it turns out that the first paper was published in PNAS the same week that Celebrex was launched, the first COX two inhibitor. So that was for some people an unhappy coincidence of events. Uh, so you know. Um, well, it's, it's, it's a bit of a game. In the US, we suffer from what's called direct-to-consumer advertising, so that only in the US and New Zealand can companies directly promote their drugs in the, in the advertising media. And there was an unprecedented investment with these drugs, both by Celebrex and Fiox, to promote them to be consumed by everybody, not just by the people who have tried the cheaper, older drugs, and have not been able to keep taking them because of their GI side effects. That was the rationale originally, but now there was sort of mass consumption of these things, and uh, you know, my unhappy message uh, had to be you know sort of <laughs> dismissed, uh, which it was. Uh, and you know, I I think in retrospect, the very important thing was we didn't try and claim anything more than the evidence we provided, uh, but gradually over time you know, signals began to appear in the clinical data. And uh, the first really substantive one was a study called Vigor, which compared Vioxx to um, naproxen, which is an old nonsteroidal drug. And, um, you know, there was an excess of cardiovascular deaths and a, a reduction in the number of serious GI events on VIOX, which was entirely consistent with what we published but winding back the clock, when I sent those emails, I was ignored, uh, and they they said thank you and goodbye. And then, when the vigor study came out, I got a I got a, a fax inviting me to uh, hear the results of this new trial. So, um, so I said, you know, the results could be chance, but they are entirely consistent with what we proposed, and what people. Began to say was well no no it's not a hazard from biox it's a protective effect of naproxen but actually the difference between the two groups was so large that if um, naproxen was as effective as aspirin in preventing effects there was still half the risk that was unaccounted for so it was likely that it was um, it it was a hazard from biox but still it wasn't a conclusive proof. And of course, Pfizer said this is a Biox problem. This has nothing to do with us. And then Pfizer published their first study. And uh, it turned out, in retrospect, they'd concealed the last six months of the data where the two groups had come apart uh, and revealed a hazard from Celebrex. So, really, the first uh, placebo control study was performed looking for a new indication for these drugs. And that was based on the expression of COX2 in premalignant lesions in the colon. So the question was, you know, could you treat these people and prevent them getting these lesions and progressing to colon cancer? First of those trials uh, was with Vioxx. And the first I knew about it was uh, when another Irishman, Kevin Horgan, who uh, was working in Merck at the time, called me up as I walked across the tarmac to catch a plane down to Atlanta where I was giving ground rounds on the Monday morning uh, to ask, could I join a conference call uh, with the leadership of Merck? So uh, I did, and I heard all about that. Um, and it was clearer than in that study uh, that there was a cardiovascular hazard from Biox. Un- un- unequivocally, it was it was placebo controlled drug. And uh, there was a lot of discussion about that. Um, and the, I came back from Atlanta, and then I flew over to Ireland uh, because I was going to my medical school reunion over in Galway. And the news broke publicly the day before I went to Galway. Um, So I spent an entire day on the phone from Dublin, talking to the media about, about this. And, uh, you know, went to my um, reunion and then came back late at night to catch the early morning flight in Dublin to um, the U.S. with my wife. And she got in a car from New York to go south to Philly. And I got in a car to go north to Finger Lakes where I was going to, mainly an industry uh, uh, organization, which was focused on inflammation. And it was the Inflammation Research Association where I was giving the plenary talk, uh, which as you'll know, the acronym is IRA. <laughs> so uh, so I gave my talk at the IRA, but on the way up, I wrote the editorial for the New England Journal in the back of the car. So it was a sort of you know bizarre period and yeah, there was, and you know, as as there was all sorts of denial around that from companies, uh, from people in academia paid by companies.
0: Okay. Uh,
1: they were the most pernicious of all, actually.
0: Right.
1: Uh, uh, but but you know, the truth will out. And, and by now, with three structurally distinct COX inhibitors from eight randomized trials, we have clear evidence of a cardiovascular hazard. So you know, ultimately, the truth will out. But you know the the sort of peculiar thing as a scientist is you're plodding along and suddenly, you know what you do is in the news. And you know a couple of days ago, at this IMAT meeting that we we hold every year, I was listening to Katie Carrico, and you know, a wonderful woman who, you know, uh, uh, really was an RNA pioneer again stood on the shoulders of giants like sydney brenner but you know as she said you know i was working at the bench when i was 28 i was still working at the bench when i was 58 and you know what you're hoping is at some stage what you do turns out to be helpful and then suddenly you know there's this explosion and she's one of the most famous people on the planet and a very a very humble one i might say
0: um I also just wanted to ask you about your molecular clocks research mm. and I suppose being the first to discover that there, there was this circadian rhythm in the cardiovascular system and um, people who listen to the podcast will know I've already interviewed uh, Dr. Annie Curtis who did her PhD with you who is pioneering circadian rhythm biology in Ireland um, but yeah I suppose talk to me about that aspect of your research.
1: Well I mean I've been very lucky to work with lots of very bright people from Ireland as well as from other places. And, you know, in the whole uh, prostaglandin story, Sandra Austin and Carrie Negan played a really big role, Eimer Smith. But in the molecular clock business, it started with a guy from Galway, Peter McNamara. And, um, you know, we'd, we'd uh, had a bruising encounter around a prostaglandin derivative that had been touted as being the endogenous ligand for a nuclear receptor, P bar gamma. And uh, this 15 deoxy 2 we knew it was made, but in trivial amounts. And the experiments that you know got, got it on the cover of cell and uh, got it into science were ridiculously industrial concentrations of the compound being dumped on on PPAR-gamma in, in vitro experiments. So we put a lot of effort into developing the methods to measure this, to do the cell biology, and so on. And we showed, yes, it can activate uh, P bar gamma, but at four orders of magnitude uh, greater than what is actually formed. And there is a bit of this in the lipid story, not just confined to that one, but a bit bruised by that. Um, I wanted the next guy in the door to, um, to work on nuclear receptors that were actually activated by lipids that were actually formed. So Peter did some experiments uh, where he was you know, like a fisherman Using a a promiscuous nuclear receptor or XORAZEB 8 in a human vascular, human endothelial, vascular smith muscle cell library, and picked out a whole load of known partners, a whole load of unknown partners. But amongst them was this uh, um, uh, transcription factor that had 50% homology with clock, which is one of the core transcription factors in the molecular clock. And at that time, it was supposed to be confined to the forebrain, not to oscillate, have no role in the clock. Uh, But actually 20 years before then, uh, when I was in the Hammersmith in London, I had done studies on diurnal variability in both uh, blood pressure and and asthma. And part of that had involved infusing pressor agents uh, to measure the baroreflex response. And I knew that the responsivity of the vasculature uh, to um, pressor agents oscillated. So there was almost certainly a clock in the vasculature. And that wasn't a big leap, uh, frankly, because at that stage it was known there was a clock in liver. So it wasn't a huge leap to say it might be in other peripheral organs as well. But the interesting thing that we showed was that when you ligated or Oryxor, which partnered, uh, well, it dimerized with, it, it dimerized itself, either homo or heterodimerized, but also partnered uh, with with clock or this alternative to clock, N-pass two. Uh, and thereby influenced the partnership of those two transcription factors with BMAL1 to form the core of the clock, Mm -hmm. that when we ligated this, either in vitro, but even more strikingly in vivo, we could phase shift the clock. So this was really the first evidence for a hormone that could circulate, that could transmit a message from the master clock, which is in the brain, out to a peripheral clock. And that was so interesting, even though it had been a sideline, we couldn't really walk away from it and another guy who was involved in those studies dan rudick persuaded me against my budgetary inclinations to pay for a chip experiment in aorta to look at how many genes were oscillating and you know about 15 percent at the frequency with which we were sampling we could see oscillating but more importantly and and mind-numbingly to me and this was back in whatever it was 2005. Uh, we saw all the genes fell into functional cassettes, and they were vascular integrity, cholesterol metabolism, uh, and, and carbohydrate metabolism, and this and uh, adipocyte maturation. And of course, that's the metabolic syndrome. Yeah. So here we have the metabolic syndrome oscillating in the aorta. Uh, what are all these carbohydrate genes doing in the aorta? Well, now we know, of course, because everybody studies metabolism in all sorts of places. But then it was strikingly surprising that we had all these fat and carbohydrate metabolic genes in the aorta, never mind oscillating. And we were very fortunate in terms of the adipocyte maturation because we'd harvested perivascular fat with the aorta, and that's how we picked that up. So once I saw that, I said, okay, we've got to stay in this business. And Dan went on to provide the first evidence for the impact of the clock. On, on carbohydrate metabolism, insulin sensitivity, and so on—that's a story in itself too. Yeah.
0: It's no, it's fascinating, and there's you know there's so many facets of your research that we could uh, delve into. But I suppose I also wanted to you know ask your opinion because I, I I've read you know your your thoughts on trying to keep Irish talent, I suppose, in Ireland. And, you know, I speak to many people on this podcast and we talk about, you know, the brain drain across the sea. And when many people get to the postdoc stage, they feel like Mm. they they have to leave. And but I I suppose, what do you think about what we should do to create opportunities to keep our talent here?
1: Well, well, I think, you know, there's no better way to keep talent than to invest resource to create opportunity. You know, that sort of waxed and waned. I mean, I think at the early days, the creation of SFI was was Really timely. Uh, well, it was beyond timely, but it was, uh, you know, the vision of people like Mary Harney, no background in science at all, but the vision of how this could contribute to the economy. You know, there was, even in those days, there was all sorts of talk about knowledge economy. But, you know, when I came back to Ireland, my lab budget was bigger than the Irish MRC budget. It was ridiculous. Uh, and the only reason we could breathe was we had money from the NIH and from the EU and from the welcome Trust. So, so I think the foundation of SF5 was extremely important. And, you know, as you know, it's sort of waxed and waned a bit. It's become a little too applied. Governments quite understandably, uh, at the time of the first crash, <laughs> ha- had the vision that if we're paying for science, we, it ha- we have to be able to see the tangible outcome. And as scientists, we all know, no, actually that's, you know, that's really silly that the really big impacts come from left field, uh, and you've got to invest in in basic science. And for sure, you have to support the tangible outcomes. But really, there was a big shift away from basic discovery uh, with the first uh, global financial crash in 2008, whatever it was, that really hasn't completely, to my mind, got readjusted back. I think we have great potential uh, in in the hard sciences, that increasingly impact on the biological sciences if that's where your, your, your interests lie. Uh, but in themselves, you know, give us all sorts of discoveries that affect our, our daily lives. So I think number one is, is, is get the resourcing right. And I think there's a bit of adjustment that needs to occur there. But secondly, with the resourcing, create the structures that actually allow for career progression. Mm-hmm. And on the one hand, they have to allow for progression. On the other hand, they have to be selective. You can't promote everybody. <laughs> you've got to allow people to fail. And of course, the other thing about failure is that, you know, in, in the old Beckett cliche, fail again and fail better. You know, if you don't get promoted in Trinity, fund a biotech company or go to UCT or, you know, do, do something else. If you still believe that they've got it wrong and you've got it right um i do believe that because we're such a small country if we're going to develop a an ever impressive scientific work- workforce we have to provide the structures and the encouragement for people to go abroad like you're about to go abroad mm-hmm. because um you know you've got to go to the best centers you've got to get trained by the best people and then you may choose to come back or you may not choose to come back and and the the funders and the government have to recognize that people have the freedom of choice and you're in a competitive market so what you want to do is to create the resources that make it attractive to people who come from ireland and have that atavistic desire to return uh, uh, to compete with the offers that they have in the best centers in the world and rather return uh, and, you know, I think that's an absolutely feasible thing to do.
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I, I suppose my, one of my last questions for you, Gareth, is, you know, what do you love about what you do and what gets you up in the morning?
1: Uh, I think two things fundamentally. Uh, one is, you know, the, the thrill of potential discovery. Um, you know, when I talk to the medical students, here are the young physicians who are very used to a very prescribed existence. Uh, You know, you do third med, you do fourth med after that, you do fifth med, uh, you know, it's all charted out for them, right? And one of the scary things for them is the insecurity and unpredictability of funding in science. And I said to them, you know, when you're 40, when you're 30, but certainly when you're 40, if you're a if you're a physician, you'll have seen at least one of most of everything. But actually, the problem in your life is you know what you're going to be doing next Thursday afternoon. And you know what you're going to be doing five years from now, next Thursday afternoon. <laughs> and the uncertainty of science is 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 the richness of life. You don't know what you're going to be doing in a month from now. So so that clash of the new, the thrill of discovery, um, uh, uh, is is one thing, and then the other thing is just the community. You know, you, you know, as you become old and decay, like me, uh, you're 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 constantly stimulated uh, by by people with many more neurons than you, because they're younger, uh, uh, and you and they they are iconoclasts, and they should be. They don't accept conventional thinking. They they question authority that's a, a really stimulating environment to be in and of course you also have the benefit of meeting your peers who've done great things uh, and, and brush shoulders with uh, with people of all ages who've made wonderful discoveries.
0: Yeah no, that's know a, that's, a, that's a lovely answer and um, I always like asking that question because it makes me motivated about science as well but Gart my last question for you um is if this was not your job and and, you know you weren't a clinician scientist where do you think your life would have ended up what Ah. in a parallel universe what would you be doing right now do you think
1: well I'm interested in politics but I certainly wouldn't be a politician Uh, (laughs) uh, that's for sure I I think you know virtually every Irish person thinks they have a book in them Uh, and thank god most of those books aren't written Uh, uh, so so yeah something that I dream about would be you know writing probably and i get to do some writing in the business that i'm in so you know i've got a bit of a bit of sucker as far as that's concerned but yeah i've always i enjoy reading a lot i, I admire uh, writers and poets uh, a lot and uh, you know i'd love to think i could have done something like that
0: uh, there could be a book in you yet now we'll see this next year your book coming out a bestseller
1: i think i think most of most of the ones i see written by people like me are best left unwritten <laughs>
0: Well, Garrett, we'll leave it there, but thank you so much for coming on to chat with me. It's been so
1: lovely. It's been a pleasure, Mike. Thanks a lot. So
0: that's it for another week of Unraveling Science. A big thanks again to our sponsor, Biosciences, now part of Thermo Fisher Scientific. And if you like this episode, please rate and review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.